It seems like a lot of superhero movies these days are borrowing songs with the title character's name in them, even if the song really has nothing to do with that character or the story. Ghost Riders in the Sky, Iron Man by Black Sabbath, it kind of makes me wish there was a really iconic superhero who could get his own movie called Barracuda. is an in-depth analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. You know, doing a jigsaw puzzle is kind of like writing a movie. You gotta put all the right pieces in just the right places without forcing anything and hope that by the time you're through, you'll have a cohesive whole, where all the individual parts gel together and you don't find out by the end that you dropped any of them on the floor. And you hope that it looks like what's on the box, what you initially set out to make. A lot of people think Ghost Rider is one of the worst superhero movies ever made. Ghost Rider has only a 26% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and some critics have called it the worst comic book movie of the last decade. Now think about that for just a minute. Worst of the whole decade over Catwoman, over Elektra, over Blade Trinity. Where I'm sitting, you have to work pretty hard to be worse than those films. To beat out all three of those movies, you'd have to be offensive, dull, overly predictable, and blatantly disregard every aspect of what made those characters popular and interesting before they went to film. I'm putting Ghost Rider squarely in the category of guilty pleasures. It's not a good movie from a story perspective, and it's not a good Ghost Rider movie from the fans' perspective. It wouldn't have to be a carbon copy of the source material, of course, but this movie seems to unintentionally make fun of it in an attempt to lighten what Mark Steven Johnson calls, in his commentary, something that is inherently dark. The main problem with the film is that, to continue with the puzzle analogy, its pieces are so obvious, so completely defined, that from the very beginning we can see the structure on top of the story rather than the structure being masked by a character we're deeply invested in and a well-thought-out story we can allow ourselves to get lost in. In his book The Writer's Journey, written in 1998, Christopher Vogler talks about mythical archetypes and heroic themes that have permeated fiction since the earliest known stories. He says that every story has been told, but there are an infinite number of variations on those stories. The writer's job is not to plug in for X, Y, and Z like a math problem. He says, and I quote, The hero's journey is a skeletal framework that should be fleshed out with the details and surprises of the individual story. The structure should not call attention to itself, nor should it be followed too precisely. He goes on to say, the patterns of myth can be used to tell the simplest comic book story or the most sophisticated drama. It's interesting that he mentions comics, given what Mark Steven Johnson says in his commentary with regards to the critical backlash with this film. First, he reminds us how successful the movie was commercially, so obviously people enjoyed it. And then he says that he didn't set out to make a deep art house picture. It's a movie about a guy with a flaming skull for a head, he says, laughing. The problem is that he also talks at length about how real his and Nicolas Cage's version of Johnny Blaze is how he wanted to go against stereotypes, and how it's a movie about second chances, meaning he wants his audience to get something out of it beyond just, it's about a guy with a flaming skull for a hat. I don't think you can have it both ways. I don't mind that there's some cheese in this movie, and I enjoy intentionally off-the-wall, out-there, silly, stupid, fun comic book movies. But this one sticks to the standard, tired superhero formula and asks us to care about what's happening. Because its intentions are in conflict, it can't get away with the excuse of, I'm just trying to put something fun on the screen. 
So let's look at the framework, the individual puzzle pieces, and see where things aren't quite locking into place. The first piece is the tragic backstory. Most superheroes have this. Batman's parents were murdered, Spider-Man's uncle Ben was murdered, the Crow himself along with his fiancée were murdered. Johnny Blaze's tragedy is strange here because it seems to me that he, the caretaker, and Mephistopheles are all calling something a choice that really wasn't a choice. As a teenager, Johnny's father has cancer, so Mephistopheles, the devil, comes to offer a trade, his father's health for Johnny's soul. Regardless of the coup of nabbing the legendary motorcycle movie actor Peter Fonda, of all people, and his appearance being unusual, he comes off as a pretty stereotypical devil, at least in his actions. Johnny doesn't even believe him and looks at him like a crackpot. He didn't know his father was sick, and now this random creepy guy shows up saying he can heal Johnny's dad if he'll give him his soul. The way the scene plays, Mephistopheles hands him the contract, his finger gets pricked on it, his blood drops on the signing line, and the devil says, that'll do fine. See, Johnny Blaze's entire character progression hinges on this moment, and it's not even a choice. The devil kills Johnny's father in a motorcycle accident to make sure he doesn't have any ties to friends or family so that when the time comes, Johnny will be his rider, his bounty hunter. Johnny loses everything but his career, which he only continues in memory of his father and to make sure he's not living in fear. He leaves his girlfriend Roxy, whom he planned to run away with, for fear of the devil hurting her next. And then, by the third act, his mentor, the caretaker, tells him that God is on his side because he gave up his soul for, quote, the right reason. His tragic past wasn't his fault because he was willing to sacrifice himself to save his father. I don't love that because I think we should certainly question the morality of working for the devil to save one person. Who knows how many people the devil might make you hurt? Apparently, Mephistopheles can actually hurt the innocent in this, Ghost Rider certainly can't, but it's not like Johnny knows the rules when he signs up. So I say his motivations would be about as selfish as the caretakers were, never mind all the meaningless fluff caretaker spouts about selling your soul for love, giving you the power to change the world. Well, anyway, all that's moot because Johnny never really made a choice. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The devil gave him a paper cut, and the movie wants to say it was his decision. Piece number two, origin and mythology. A lot of superhero movies are origin stories. In fact, some of the best are origin stories. But as I've said many times, origins are hard to pull off because there has to be a good, solid story there, not just two hours of stretching out a plot device that was originally designed just to get the ball rolling, like with Fantastic Four. This movie has that problem also. A very typical and bland villain plot is thrown together so the movie can focus on origin. It tries to look like the events are born out of interesting character motivation, but the movie is pretty clearly focused on trying not to put an audience off that isn't familiar with the material. So, once again, we've got to sit through every single stage of Johnny Blaze becoming Ghost Rider, and only at the very end of the movie, when he's riding off alone, having fully embraced and able to control the Ghost Rider, and knowing the devil probably isn't through with him, does it seem like things might start getting really interesting. And were the inner struggle of Johnny wrestling with his demon inside him played up more, and if we got more specific information on exactly what the Ghost Rider is and what its relationship with Johnny is, the origin could have sustained a whole film. But as it is, it's very predictable and extremely familiar. The mythology is very problematic, because I don't know most of the rules. We've got a character in The Caretaker who, like Cogliostro and Spawn, is pretty much just there to give us exposition. And while the audience is really 
spoon-fed information about the very cookie-cutter bad guy plot we can pretty much figure out for ourselves, he never tells me anything I want to know. Mephistopheles seems to only call on the ghostwriter when he needs someone hunted down. We're never told why, with all his power, he can't go after his own son, Blackheart. Again, I'd like to know what the ghostwriter is. Is it an entity with its own consciousness, or is it a dark part of Johnny Blaze manifested as a guy with a skull for a head? It laughs maniacally every time it gets out, which is some of the best acting from Cage in the film, by the way. But then Johnny, pretty easily, begins to control it. So if he's in control, do the spirit and Johnny talk to each other? Is it a perfectly unified symbiotic relationship? In the final showdown, there doesn't seem to be much difference between Johnny and the writer anymore. So is his personality in control and the writer is suppressed? What exactly is their relationship? And most importantly, why is it such a big deal to Mephistopheles at the end when Johnny decides to keep the ghost writer? He gave it to him, can he take it away? We can theorize, maybe it's because God is on his side, like the caretaker said. But we're not told anything, and that makes the devil look extremely weak. The most threatening thing he does the whole movie is kill Johnny's dad. He can't even fight his own son. Why? IMDb's synopsis for the sequel, which has yet to be released on the taping of this review, says that the devil is trying to take human form. So he's limited somehow by not being an actual physical human form? That would have been good information to have. Piece number three, the buddy who worries about the hero. Just like Daredevil has Foggy Nelson, Johnny has Mac. Sorry, not that Mac. That Mac. He's very likable and genuinely cares about his friend who keeps unnecessarily putting his life on the line. I love the look on his face when he finds out Johnny is about to jump helicopters over a football field. Unfortunately, this is a friendship that never pays off because there's so much focus on the love story and on the transformation into Ghost Rider that once the movie finally remembers Mac is around again, he immediately gets killed by Blackheart. You could say it's trying to do something unpredictable, but that would only be satisfying if it said something about Johnny's character. We can extrapolate that because he made a deal with the devil, his life is screwed and there's nothing he can do about it. He's destined to ultimately live alone with no friends or family, but the movie doesn't explore this so much as hint at it. When Mac dies, Johnny doesn't mourn. He doesn't say or do anything about it. He simply goes back to the caretaker to get the contract Blackheart's after to steal a bunch of souls so he can save his girlfriend. And Mac winds up looking like a character created solely to make Johnny more likable at the beginning, and then he's discarded when the movie no longer needs him. Piece number four, villain with a world domination plot. There are lots of variations on this. Supervillains often want to rule the world, destroy the world, destroy a city, etc. The problem with Blackheart is that A, he's an extremely stock bad guy who wants to get really powerful because he's an evil demon guy, and B, I have no idea why he's shown up to do this now, at this very moment. Except that the script needs him and the old flame to show up at the same time. Blackheart and his cronies are all really, really easy to defeat, and Ghost Rider kills them in extremely obvious and unimaginative ways. We don't get to root for our hero's ingenuity. He's simply very powerful, and his element is, for whatever reason, stronger than the other elements, so he always wins. And your movie always lacks credibility when beings who have been around for millennia are taken out one by one like campers in a slasher flick. There's an attempt to make Blackheart seem more powerful than Ghost Rider just after he kills Mac when he grabs the writer and he immediately turns back into Johnny, but then at the end, Johnny remembers that his pen and stare didn't work before and uses it now that he has all these souls he's sucked into himself. Again, it's too easy, and I'm not impressed because anyone with a brain would have thought of that. We even briefly get the cliched bit about the bad guy trying to get the hero to join him, though, as usual, I kind of wonder why Blackheart would even think Johnny would be interested in that. 
Isn't the devil more powerful than he is? Even if he was working for the devil because he wanted to, why would he switch sides to the easy as just spinning a flaming chain to kill us club? Maybe it's because, with Ghost Rider's element, they can summon Captain Planet! Earth, Wind, Water, Fire, Blackheart! Go Planet! Uh, maybe not. The villain story is just an excuse for the devil to give Johnny a mission, and because superhero movies need supervillains. It's awkward, too, because his mission is to stop a demon from becoming too powerful. Now, I get that you wouldn't want to be a slave to the devil, but if these are the only kinds of missions he's planning to send Johnny on, I don't think being Ghost Rider would be so bad. Stopping Blackheart is probably good for everybody. If the devil weren't really evil and just a guy following rules, that would make a little more sense, but he's deceptive and cheats to get what he wants, too, so... It's kind of all over the place. Again, we need clearer rules. What exactly are the devil's goals? Just to punish the guilty? Is that why Ghost Rider has the penance steer? If that's his job, then why doesn't he employ Ghost Rider all the time to go around punishing bad souls for him? Or does he want guilty souls for hell? I'm confused. Piece number five, the artifact that makes world domination possible. Or whatever the bad guy plot is. In Batman Begins, it's the water-evaporating weapon. In Spider-Man 2, it's that element Doc Ock needs for his energy experiment. Here, it's a contract the caretaker has been hiding for years to keep the devil from stealing a bunch of souls. The difference is, Batman Begins and Spider-Man 2 had more complex things going on with their villains than just the artifact they were after, and the reason they needed it right then wasn't contrived. This plot is all about the artifact, and there's no interesting character motivation behind it. Blackheart's just evil, the contract gives him power, that's it. Piece number six, the old mentor who can provide exposition. Lots of superhero movies have mentors who train their heroes, but the good ones do more with those characters than just provide information and then leave. The caretaker has a somewhat interesting backstory about how he made his deal with the devil for greed and then did the right thing later by stealing the contract away and saving all those souls. Sam Elliott is another great coup, and he and Nick Cage have decent enough presence together on screen, but all of his interesting character stuff has already happened before the film even begins. He doesn't do anything interesting in the present, except a fantastic-looking scene where he becomes a Ghost Rider one last time and rides with his horse alongside Johnny's Ghost Rider. I do appreciate that he doesn't save the day for Johnny, but I wouldn't have minded them fighting alongside each other. Apparently, he could only change one more time, though I have no idea why or how he even knows that, and he was saving it to ride with Johnny for a while in a straight line. Really not sure why that was necessary, unless he thought it would last longer and he was planning on helping to fight Blackheart, but then it wore off. It takes a little fun out of that scene, despite the cool rendition of Ghost Riders in the Sky playing in the background and some really solid CG in the landscape and the riders. Also, the movie is really lazy about how often Ghost Riders are chosen. In the opening narration, the caretaker says, every generation has one. But later, he tells Johnny there hasn't been one for 150 years. And if he's the last one, and he can only change that one last time, what's keeping him alive if he's that old? Piece number seven, weird quirks that make the hero likable. Nicolas Cage decided Johnny should be less stereotypical, so instead of chain-smoking and drinking as he was intended to do originally, he avoids all vices and replaces them with more wholesome and silly things like jelly beans, the carpenters, and the Discovery Channel. And by the way, I doubt he would look like this if he ate that many jelly beans. 
Now, a lot of heroes have some unusual personality quirk that sets them apart, but Johnny has too many to be relatable. It's hard to imagine most people reacting to a deal with the devil this way, but Mark Stephen Johnson agrees with Cage and says it's more believable. The idea is that he's trying to get away from anything considered evil or sinful to try to keep the devil away, all the while knowing he might show up at any moment. I guess that's kind of an interesting take, but it's so counterintuitive to the character of Johnny Blaze. I think a relatable and involved character could be made out of what was originally there in the comics without having to go so far off in left field. It doesn't have to be just like the source material, but this guy's a different character entirely. Johnson, in his commentary, talks about how much of a fan Nicolas Cage is of Ghost Rider, how he has a flaming skull tattoo on his shoulder, and how much he knows about the character. And I just have to question why he felt the need to change the character's basic attitude. It's almost like making Snake Plissken a former Baptist minister. Okay, I wouldn't have expected that, but that doesn't make it a good move. Piece number eight, come cover looking money shots. A lot of this movie does look really good, and Ghost Rider is fun to watch, going out and doing his thing. He laughs, he's having fun. I love him on the roof pulling down the helicopter with the pilot who apologizes for making him angry, the shot of him driving up the side of a building, the brilliant shot as he drops off that building. There's some spectacular action here, and it's trying to carry the whole movie. The transformation from Johnny to Ghost Rider is scary looking, and I like what the penance stare looks like, but for every cool, edgy, dark image, there's something goofy to offset it and make the tone uneven. Listening to the commentary, it sounds like Johnson was so worried about the movie getting too dark, he made it too silly instead. Piece number nine, the girlfriend who's there just to get kidnapped. I don't really care for Ava Mendez here. Her acting is pretty flat, and she and Nicolas Cage just don't go together. Part of that is, and I should have mentioned this earlier, Cage is at least a decade too old for this role. They're supposed to be about the same age, and they just look too far apart. It's too contrived that she just shows up when the devil finally comes calling, and if he had planned that, that would have worked great. But despite Johnny saying there are no accidents, that's just what this seems to be. Roxy comes off sometimes as too superficial, like when Johnny misses their date and she gets really drunk and asks the waiter if he thinks she looks pretty. Really? That's the first place your head goes? The guy who just did a bunch of really dangerous and impressive stunts going 60 miles an hour down the highway just to get you to go to dinner with him has suddenly decided he's uninterested because a couple hours later he doesn't think you're pretty? Why do people always jump to conclusions in movies with someone's late to something and even when they have a good reason still feel the need to take it personally? This comes right out of the Mary Jane Watson dating handbook. Again, this love story is only here because superhero movies are supposed to have them, and so the typical villain can typically use her to get Ghost Rider to do what he wants. We've also seen the girlfriend in peril story done in brilliant superhero movies. It's in The Dark Knight, but it's only okay when it doesn't call attention to itself, and it really does here. I do like a couple things about this relationship. I like that Roxy and Johnny have a history, so it's more believable that they're into each other here, and I like the attempt at turning a stereotype on its head, where Johnny tells her he's Ghost Rider right away rather than trying to keep it from her, in that very I'm Batman sort of scene. But their relationship is ultimately meaningless because after all the talk about second chances, he gives her up at the end. I suppose because the police are still after him. Though I never really got how the cops put Ghost Rider and Johnny Blaze together in the first place. Maybe I missed something. I just think it's too much of a feel-good movie to end like this, and it doesn't even feel really tragic at the end. It comes off more like, well, there might be a sequel and we probably won't have this actress again, so we'll write her out. 
I suppose his decision to choose fighting the devil over spending his life with the girl of his dreams is heroic and endearing. But there's not any build-up to it. He seems to make this choice because the movie sees that as heroic, not because he's had a character arc that gets him there. After seeing her arrival as a sign that he has a second chance at happiness, I need to know what, during the course of these events, changed his mind about that. Is it just that he's become Ghost Rider? Toward the end, coming out of Ghost Rider form, he calls himself a monster. Far too late to suddenly bring that idea up, because it's the first time we have any real indication that he feels that way about it. See, his characterization is all over the place. I can't figure out why he says or does anything. Piece number 10, the moral lesson repeated half a dozen times. Johnny's with great power comes great responsibility line is you don't have to live in fear. But at the beginning, I think he does live in fear. He's afraid the devil will come back after him so he avoids all vices. Sure, he keeps doing death-defying stunts, but there's a part of him that knows he'll be okay because he knows it's the devil saving him. Seems to me like he's terrified all the time. By the end, I suppose he's decided to embrace his destiny and fight the devil rather than run from him. So he's learned the lesson he kept telling himself in denial. Perhaps the movie is saying we should do the right thing no matter what we have to sacrifice. That's okay, but we don't feel enough of the weight of what he's losing along with him. There's not enough stress on how alone he has to be now and what he's going to miss. He doesn't have to whine about it, of course, but he does need to feel it, the pain of losing his friend and his girlfriend, as we saw the pain he felt when he lost his father, which was very well handled. Piece 11, Personal Sacrifice. Again, it's there, but not because the story naturally proceeds there, but more because it's a superhero story and they're supposed to have those. And the final piece is the heroic vow. As I mentioned before, Johnny decides to keep being the ghostwriter because it's the heroic thing to do, but I don't feel like I understand him well enough as a character to believe that's the choice he'd make. The story doesn't completely fall apart, it just never completely comes together. The movie is so concerned with how everything looks, the mood and atmosphere of each scene on its own, that it doesn't have a definitive style on the whole. It wants to be a gothic superhero western, but it's each of those at different times, not all at once. There are a lot of fantastic stunts, like when Johnny falls off his bike toward the beginning, and on the whole, I find it pretty entertaining, but only on the level of cheesy comic book film. I have to ignore all the places where it asks me to see these characters as real people, because it does, but they're not. The structure drives the characters, and that's the difference between a movie that looks like this and one that looks like this. I don't think it's close to the worst superhero movie ever made, but it's certainly one of, if not the most mediocre, and so appropriately, I'm giving it a 2 out of 4. I'm starting a new series that will take the place of Superhero Rewind once every month or two called Rewind United. I asked for nominations for movies to review in any genre, and I've got a ginormous list now. I was going to put up the top five and ask everyone to vote again, but I've decided that just this first round, I'll review the movie voted for the most times, as it won the most votes by a wide margin, despite nearly 200 suggestions. So in two weeks, I'll be reviewing Fight Club. Bye.